Hey, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'm John, one of the pastors here at North Park. So glad you could be here with us. Excited to open up God's Word, and uh, as we just heard uh, this morning, does that blow your mind that half of the languages around the world don't have the Bible, the Word of God? So we're thankful that we do, and uh, every Sunday we get to open it up, try to read it, understand it, and see what God has for us. So I pray that your heart is open to hear what God has for you. Uh, we're starting a brand new series uh, going to do seven weeks in Romans 8. It's called Identity, so I get a chance to kick it off uh, this morning, and then Phil will pick it up uh, next week. But uh, I to ask, any of you guys ever get to meet your heroes before? Maybe like a sports figure, somebody that you watched or followed growing up, and then you got to meet them. Maybe it's a community leader, somebody that's really made a difference in your neighborhood or in your community or to meet a politician, and... Uh, you really looked up to him. You got a chance to meet him. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe you heard stories about Uncle Joe and what a great guy he was, and you finally got a chance to meet him. Or maybe it's just a celebrity, somebody famous, going through an airport maybe, and you see somebody. And uh, you guys know those skit guys when we do those uh, little clips? I went to a youth ministry conference one time, and uh, we're checking in at the hotel, and I look over, and it's like the shorter skit guy. And I had some chocolate chip cookies that my wife had sent with me, and I gave him one. It was really cool. It's like I met that guy. I know him, right? Hey, right here is two famous people. John Nixon. Famous. No, not really at all. But you guys know who that other guy is? That is Stephen Curtis Chapman. So for those of you that are under 30, you're like, who cares? I don't know who that is. But I grew up listening to Stephen Curtis Chapman. I've loved his music, followed him throughout the years. My kids grew up with that. And uh, this past uh, October, a song came out. He hasn't put out a new album or toured or anything like that for quite a number of years, but he put out individual songs. And so I heard a song on the radio. And then uh, a couple months later, here just uh, like in January, early January, they said he had a new album out and he was touring. So I texted my kids like, how come you didn't tell me this? This is life changing. Stephen Curtis Chapman has a new album out, and so they checked into it, and he's, uh, he tours now, but it's kind of a really laid-back, smaller venues and stuff like that, but he was going to be in Fort Wayne, and my birthday's in January, so they bought me tickets, and because it's a smaller venue and everything, I got VIP tickets, and so I got to go and meet Stephen Curtis Chapman, and he said, like, hello, what's your name? <laughs> I was just stunned. But it was really cool. Get to meet him, and then we had uh, VIP seats and got to hear him. And he kind of just went through the years of his songs and everything like that. But, you know, I was thinking about Stephen Curtis Chapman and his impact that he's had. I know in my own life, but I think about his breadth of ministry that he's had, the people he's impacted. If I wasn't careful, I started to think, like, man, I wonder if my life is as good as his. So I was thinking, like, how many number one songs do I have? He's got a few more. Like, he's got 50 number one songs, and I've got zero. (laughs) So I think he's ahead of me there. But in reality, I started thinking, it's easy to look at people that we think are heroes or celebrities, and it's a weird thing in Christianity to have Christian celebrities, you know? But if I'm not careful, it's easy to think, like, you know, his life's better than mine. Like, he's made more of a difference. Maybe even that he's more important, more valuable than I am. And maybe I'm not as good as he is at what he does. Maybe I'm not as good at what I do. Am I the only one that ever thinks that way? You think about being in a business or your job, and when things are going well, the economy's booming, your company's growing, you got an important role, and you feel good, like, man, I really am valuable. I, 
I got a good life. And then the economy changes, and out of the blue, you lose your job. And now you can't get a job in a field that you like or use your skills. And it's easy to start thinking, like, man, I'm, I'm nobody now. I'm trying to provide for my family. I used to feel important. People looked up to me. And now I just I don't feel like that at all. <clears throat> Maybe you're a teacher. And you got into teaching because you really love kids and you want to make a difference. And then you met the kids who are in your class. No, but you know, as a teacher, and I really do appreciate teachers. Teachers do an incredible job. And if you're a teacher uh, here at our church, probably at some time when I ask you about it, then I tell you thank you. Thank you for being there. Teachers are super important. But, but it's easy as a teacher, isn't it, to pour your life into those kids and then get wrapped up into their success. And if they don't do well, then you start to feel like, well, I'm not doing a very good job. Or maybe it's just the pressures of everybody has different expectations. But when your kids are doing well and maybe you're getting awards for uh, doing a good job or your, your kids are excelling, it's easy to think like, man, I'm really somebody. Like, this is important. But when it's not going well, or maybe there's some parents who are complaining or you got some difficult kids or your test scores aren't as high as you wanted them to be, it can be easy to feel like, man, I just don't know if I'm really that important. <clears throat> I've never struggled with this, but... Some of you guys are really beautiful and handsome people. And that means a lot to you. And some of us, we used to think that when we were younger. And we thought it would last forever. But we live in a culture that really focuses on your physical appearance. And it's easy to feel like when you're younger or when you look good or you have the look that you want. Man, life is good and I'm pretty valuable. I mean, this is who I am. People uh, comment and they respect that. But physical appearance changes and it does go away and when that happens sometimes not even something we can control maybe it's a a physical thing that happens or we could be in an accident something that changes our physical appearance or just as we get older right so when that physical appearance is gone if that's our identity we can very easily lose ourselves or feel like we're just not that important anymore and one last one i'll just share with you in ministry I, uh, there's some of you here in our church that have been solo pastors and have served so faithfully, uh, sometimes people serving in the field or many of you in your volunteer roles that have given hours and hours and so much effort towards ministering and doing that, right? I can say from my own experience, I've always felt very appreciated at the churches that I've been at. This is my third one in, in my career. You guys make me feel very appreciated. I can see where God works. And now at this age, I can really see where God has gifted me in certain areas, and it makes an impact. But ministry isn't always that way for those of us who get to do it as a career and for those of you who volunteer. Sometimes people don't like what you're doing, and you're doing your best to just try to love them and serve them, and they don't want it. And it doesn't go well. Or you can get a particular group of people who are upset with you, and it can be... A month, a year of ongoing struggle. And it'd be easy to feel like that's my identity. I'm a pastor. I minister. That's who I am. But when that doesn't go well, for whatever reason, sometimes it's not people, sometimes it's me. Sometimes where I'm at in my life or sometimes I just don't do a good job, right? So it's easy to start to think, man, who am I really? like?" So part of what I'm trying to say is it seems like our core identity needs to be more secure than that. 
If our identity is wrapped up in those kinds of things, in other people's opinions, their response to us, in comparing ourselves to other people, if it's wrapped up in appear to be successes or failures, that can be a very difficult life. And so I think we need to have a core identity that is stable, that frees us up to pursue who God wants us to be. And then these other things are secondary issues of identity. So this series, we're going to look in Romans chapter 8, we're going to kind of unpack different aspects of who we are in Christ. We can better comprehend who it is God has made us and what he's done in our life. I think we'll see that we're better able to address even a lot of the issues that we struggle with. Our behavior issues, so interesting in scripture. It always starts with who we are before it addresses those behaviors and symptoms out there. And so I really believe that there is power in identity. When we can fully grasp who it is that God has made us to be, it puts us in a much better place, not only to address the behavior issues and the other things that we're working on, but to really be able to pursue freely who it is God has made us to be and what he wants us to do. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 8, and I'd like to remind you guys the The Bible is a library of books. You'll find uh, Romans right down here in Paul's epistles in the New Testament if you want to find your place in your Bible or in your device. And then I've shown you this map uh, quite a bit, but I just remind you that as Christianity spread, we find these different cities where these letters are written from. This one is uh, uh, Romans, so it's written to the believers in Rome. But Paul, if you remember even from Colossians, it was one of his goals was to get to Rome. He wanted to go to Rome to be a witness for Christ. And so before he gets there, he decides to write this kind of a treatise, if you will. It's a summary of Christian teaching. It's the summary of the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. And so he sends it ahead uh, to the churches there in Rome. And we're going to be in chapter 8, and we're going to read verses 1 through 4 to start with. It says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives the life who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the Spirit. So, Phil has trained us very well. We look at the first word of verse 1. It's therefore. Now, usually, uh, therefore refers to the immediate context, but I think it also refers to the kind of sweeping idea that he's talked about in the book of Romans. He's establishing that we are in need of a Savior. And how is it that we can find that salvation? Now, it says, therefore, now there is no condemnation. So if now there's no condemnation, that means before. There was. And what is that condemnation? What is our standing before God? And that's what he spends quite a few chapters at the very beginning to establish, that we as sinful people before a holy God, we are condemned. But we can see that in Romans chapter 5, where Paul explains this a little bit. He says, when Adam sinned. So back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, real people, created in the image of God, but without sin. Gave him a garden. Enjoy. Just don't eat from these two trees right there. That's all you got. Just those two. And yet, they were tempted. Tempted themselves. Tempted by the devil. 
and they ate. They disobeyed God. So when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. There was no sin in God's perfect world before that. And when Adam sinned, it brought death. Death being a physical death. God had told Adam and Eve that. If you do this, you will die. And that was one of the things Satan tempted them with. Oh, come on, you're not really going to die. But indeed, they did die. They died physically, but they died spiritually. And now there was a separation between them and their wonderful, holy creator. Perfect relationship. Disobedience and sin comes, and now death comes. A physical death that impacted our world, which we continue to experience, but also a spiritual death that every single one of us experience as we are separated from God when we come into this world. And so it spread to everyone for everyone's sin. So there's two parts to this in that Adam and Eve, Adam was our representative. And as good Americans, we don't really like that. Adam represented us so that when he sinned, the consequence of his sin came to every human being who's ever born. We call this original sin. When you hear the term original sin, it doesn't mean like the very first sin only. What original sin means is that impacted everyone. Everyone sinned. Adam represented us. And so we come into this world as sinners with a sin nature. But it's okay because every one of us actually does commit sin as well. But that's the impact. All right. Continuing. Still, everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit command of God as Adam did. Now, Adam is a symbol. He's our representative, a representative of Christ who is yet to come. So Adam is the first man and Christ is going to be the second man. So now there's no condemnation we're going to look at. But before there was every single one of us born into this world, come into this world, a sinner, under condemnation, unable to please and obey a holy God. So how do we get to that no condemnation? Well, let's touch on it here briefly. In Romans 5, it continues, and in verse 16, it says, The result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of Adam. In Adam, Adam sinned and it brought death. When Jesus comes, he brings something very different. And the result... Is very different. For Adam's sin led to what? Condemnation. So we're under condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. So every single one of us is either in Adam, still, under condemnation, or we are in Christ, having come into a life-giving union with him, which makes us right with God. Back to verse 1, Romans chapter 8 there. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So in Adam, we share in his consequences of sin and death, condemned for all of eternity to be separated from God in a place created for devils and demons, but where sin is punished in a place called hell. In Christ, life, forgiveness of sins, righteousness, and spending all of eternity in relationship with God in a place called heaven. And so Paul says, verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the most important thing that you can think about this morning, if you think about your identity and who you are, is 
Are you in Adam still? You come into the world in Adam. That's who you are. Or are you now in Christ? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? So that you've been transferred from being in Adam to being in Christ. And what I want to do this morning as we look at the next couple of verses is unpack that. What does it mean to have no condemnation now? I want to give you three pictures of what that means to have no condemnation. Right? So the first one is slavery and redemption. Slavery and redemption. If you look at verse 2. It says, because through Christ, Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, notice the uh, two laws that are contrasted there. There's the law of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. That's the active, active, uh, we'll say it a different way. That's the energizing of our spiritual life when the Holy Spirit comes into our heart. And makes us a new person. It makes us alive to God. That's the law of the Spirit. Really what Paul is saying is without that, we could never have life. We could never get out from underneath that condemnation. There's a law of the Spirit that has to be at work. And that's in contrast to this law of sin and death. Now the law specifically speaks about the Old Testament and the laws that God gave. But in general, the law is simply the righteous standards of God. And Jesus sets us free from that. It's not that the law is bad, but we all feel the inability to keep the law and to keep it perfectly, to not lie, to not be selfish, to love your neighbor, to have righteous thoughts. All of those things that the law describes, it describes what it would be like to live the righteousness of God, but we can't keep that. And so it becomes a law of sin and death, but it sets us free. And so there's this picture of slavery and redemption. Redemption is a ransoming, a liberating, a buying back. And it's used with the background of someone who is helpless, enslaved, and captured. And in the Old Testament where redemption takes place, it's usually a kinsman redeemer, like in the story of Ruth. Someone who's a family member has a special right. To do so. So we are enslaved to the law of sin and death. We're under its power. The Israelites struggled with this, the Jews. John chapter 8, Jesus is having a conversation with them and a verse that's even well known in our country, right? So the truth will set you free. You know where that context of that is? Jesus is in a discussion with these Jewish religious leaders and he says to them, My truth will set you free. And they're like, Not like me. Saying to you guys, you know, hey, what I'm telling you is going to make you free. You'll no longer be slaves. You're like, we're not slaves now. Like, we're free. We live in America. We don't have slavery. I'm not a slave. And that's what they said. And Jesus said, but you are a slave. Because you're a slave to sin. Because whatever you do, whatever your life is committed to, you become a slave to it. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. And they got very angry about that. What Jesus was saying is if you're not able to keep the law perfectly, it points out your sin and you're a slave to that sin. And you'll continue to be trapped in that sin with no way out and under the condemnation of God. In the book of Colossians that we just studied, chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, we read these verses. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature, because it was not cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all your sins 
He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away, nailing it to the cross. So this picture of slavery and redemption is that we were enslaved to sin. No way out. Under God's condemnation. Not able to break free. And yet God made a way for us to be set free. In other words, he paid for you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he paid for you to be free. That's what it means to have no condemnation. He paid for us. There's a second picture, and that is a sacrifice and propitiation. So I'm sharing a, a few theological words here, so don't be afraid of those. But theological words are really great. Think of it this way, of great buckets that carry significant truth for us to be able to put it in one package and really understand it. There's a picture of sacrifice or propitiation. Verse 3, Paul says, For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh. So the law couldn't save us. It couldn't save them, and it can't save us. But it's not that the law is bad. One of the uh, theologians talked about, let's say that uh, I end up uh, breaking my leg and I need some pain medication, right? I really need some strong pain medication. Instead, I take some dime tap, some children's cold medicine, right? And that doesn't help me. But does that mean the dime tap wasn't good? It's a perfectly good medicine, right? It just wasn't the right medicine for what the problem that I had. So the law is very good. It reflects the character of God. But what makes the law powerless? It's weakened by what? The flesh. We're the problem. Because we can't keep the law. So the law can't save us because we can't keep it. So God has to step in and do something different. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, the incarnation holy God coming to live as a human being and yet being without sin so that he could be a sin offering. And so he condemns the sin in the flesh rather than condemning us. Isn't that a wonderful truth? Jesus comes to condemn the sin in the flesh rather than condemning us. And he does that by becoming a sin offering. Now, if you go to the Old Testament, there's elaborate systems of uh, sacrifice. And there's ways to atoned for unintentional sins and intentional sins, and there were specific things, and sometimes it was grain and uh, some of your harvests and stuff, but the one we're probably most familiar with is animal sacrifice. The idea behind the sin offering is we've committed a sin against the holy God, so somebody has to pay for it. And God set up a system which seems strange to us, may even seem cruel to some degree. But he wanted us to understand that somebody has to pay for our sin. There's got to be a sacrifice made. And so they would take a harmless, innocent lamb. And they would sacrifice that lamb in the place of the people who deserved to pay for the sin. And it taught a principle, a life for a life. That's really what's required for our sin. That's why we're under condemnation. The sin has to be paid for it. Our life is what we are, in reality, supposed to give for our sin. And so we have this picture of no condemnation in sacrifice, this propitiation, and that this was a foreshadowing day after day and week after week or year after year. It pictures when that animal was sacrificed and that blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, that there is a way for our sins to be forgiven. But those 
Hebrews would tell us the blood of those goats and animals, that didn't really remove our sin. It was a picture of something greater that was coming. And we know that that picture was Jesus. It was a picture of him. In 1 John 4.10, John would say, This is real love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. And normally it was a human priest who offered the sacrifice on behalf of humans. That's what a priest is. It's somebody who represents God to the people, and he represents the people to God. But in this case, it's God himself, Jesus, who is the high priest, and he becomes the sacrifice. As he gives himself willingly, voluntarily, to take the punishment for our sin. There's a quote by uh, John Stott, and I'm going to read some of it in the last part of it I want you to see on the screen. He said, God's love must be wonderful beyond comprehension. God could quite justly have abandoned us to our fate. He could have left us alone to reap the fruit of our wrongdoing and to perish in our sins. It is what we deserved, but he did not. And because he loved us, he came after us in Christ. He pursued us even to the desolate anguish of the cross. So much so that we sang this morning, the wonderful cross. That's where Jesus went for us. Where he bore our sin and our guilt and our judgment and our death. And then John Stott says this. It takes a hard and stony heart to remain unmoved by love like that. It's more than love. Its proper name is grace, which is love undeserved. I don't know where you are in your faith journey, what you understand about God and how much he loves you. But I hope that right now you'll see this offer of no condemnation centers around a sacrifice. Because not only did he pay for you, but he took your place. (laughs) He stepped in and took our place. Was that sacrifice accepted? <laughs> we know that it is, even as we enter this Easter season, because after three days in the grave, he rose. He's alive. That was God saying, approved. That sacrifice has been accepted. So the first picture is slavery and redemption. I hope that you hear today that he paid for you. Second picture is sacrifice and propitiation. And I hope you hear that he took your place. And the third one is a courtroom. And it speaks of justification. Verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Because of God's righteousness and his holiness, he couldn't just say, like we do sometimes with people, don't worry about it. It's all right. This one's on me. That would violate, violate his justice. His holiness and his justice requires that the sin has to be paid for. The righteous requirement of the law had to be fully met. And notice where it's met. In us. Does that surprise you? Not just in Jesus, but it's met in us. How is it met in us? That means that God has done this in such a way where you and I now are righteous. He is 
He has made us righteous and he is helping us to live out his righteousness. The requirement of the law is met. And so this is the courtroom scene where we're on trial. And we are so guilty. We can make up every excuse that we want. We can blame other people. We can say we didn't mean it. We didn't understand it. And then we're honest and we go, I I did. That's me. I'm guilty. I am under God's condemnation and I have no way out. I can't be good enough. I can't pay it. I'm stuck. But what justification tells us is that because of what Jesus did, we go free. We're acquitted. The guilty are declared not guilty. But it's not just that he says we're not guilty. Now God treats us sinners as if we're good. You see that? It's not that we're just not guilty, but he treats us as if we are good. Some of you know this verse from Isaiah 118, and you might hear it as, Come now, let us reason together. Let us settle this. It's a courtroom scene. And God is saying, Come now, let's settle this. Though your sins are scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Now, I know that's hard for us in Michigan. Got to bring up snow, right? But think of the purity of it as opposed to the dark scarlet. But notice he doesn't say, I forgive them. He said, I will make I will make them as white as snow. And though you, though they are red like crimson, I will make them white as wool. It's not just that God takes our sin, but we get Jesus' perfect life. It's the great exchange. Where are you going to find a deal like that? Jesus says, not only will I take your sin and all the punishment, but I'm going to give you my perfect life that I lived without one sin. I give that to you. And now when God sees us as Christians, when he looks at us, he sees us through the sun. As John Calvin says, he smiles. Holy God smiles at us because he sees us through the righteousness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we would be made right with God through Christ. He sees you as righteous. Not only did he pay for you, not only did he become your substitute, but he sees you now as righteous. It's a story told of uh, Hector great Trojan warrior, and he was getting ready to go out and fight Achilles. You guys might have read about that. It's in uh, Iliad of Homer, or there's some movies made about that. And The story is told that here he put on all his uh, armor, looked really fierce, and before he left, he went to give his little son a hug. And actually, it turned out to be the last hug that he would give because he died. But his son cried and was afraid of him because he had all his armor on. So this great warrior, Hector, laughed. Then he took his helmet off. And he smiled, and his son came to him. Because he could see the love of his dad now that the armor was removed. That's a great picture of what God did for us. We see him in his wrath and his holiness and his justice. He is God, and we are sinful people. And so we we cry. We, we can't be in front of him. But then he takes his helmet off, and, and Jesus, he goes to the cross. He enters into our experience. And there he gives himself on our behalf so that he can smile at us now. We can approach him and we can call him daddy. So only grace provides a way 
for a holy God to forgive sinful people without violating his justice. And this is why Christianity is the only true way to have a relationship with God. There's no amount of religion or keeping certain rituals or anything that we could do on our own to achieve this. Because God is holy and righteous, he can't just say, don't worry about it. But his grace provides a way for a holy God to forgive sinful people without violating his justice. Psalm 85.10 says it beautifully. Unfailing love and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. That's what we get in Jesus. So Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, Therefore there is now, say that with me, no condemnation. One more time. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So not everyone has that no condemnation. If you're here and you don't know Jesus today, I encourage you to consider how much he loved you. Holy God giving himself for you. And all that's required is that you believe it. Believe that Jesus is God's son, that he died for you, that he rose again. And give your life to him. As a Christ follower, this is your core identity. Remember who you are. He paid for you. He took your place. And he sees you as righteous. Students, when you're lonely at school and don't have friends, don't feel like you matter, that no one sees you, hear him say to you, I paid for you. I paid for you. When we mess up, We make choices. We don't feel like we deserve forgiveness sometimes. Or that we deserve a second chance. Just hear him say, I took your place. I took your place. When you're tempted to try to find your identity and money or status or pursuing all these other things. And when you feel stuck. And at times when you feel so sick of yourself and your sin. And you think there's no way. That God loves me and there's no way that I should get to spend eternity with God. Just hear him say, I see you as righteous. Because that is our core identity as believers in Jesus. And I propose this morning that there is great power in that identity. So remember who you are. As we go through this series, we want to keep coming back to different aspects of that core identity. And then, because I worked with students for 30 years, I offer one last evidence of proof that there is power in identity in the Incredibles. Any kids out there, you guys like the Incredibles? In that movie, there's a scene where mom has to talk to the kids, and she's got to leave, and she puts the mask on uh, Dash, and then she says this, your identity is your most valuable possession, so protect it. Protect it. Think about superheroes. Let me ask you a question. Uh, The Hulk. What's his uh, real name, the Hulk? Bruce Banner. What about Superman? Clark Kent. Iron Man? Tony Stark. What about Batman? Bruce Wayne. And what about Spider-Man? What's his name? Peter Parker, all right? Peter Parker puts on his uh, mask and his his, uh, costume that he wears. When is he more really himself? When he has his mask on or when he has it off? Kind of mixed there. 
He's been bitten by a spider, right? So the real Spider-Man can climb walls. He can spin webs, right? So when does he do those things? When he has his mask on or when he has his mask off? It's when he puts it on. It's kind of counterintuitive there, right? But that's the real him. He gets to be who he really is when he has that mask on. And we don't need to wear a mask. But I really believe if we truly comprehend who we are, then that is what frees us to really be who God designed us to be. And then we can face the different circumstances in life. We can face the ups and downs of career and family, our physical appearance, whether we have a lot of material things or a little, because we keep coming back to who we really are. We can live a better life. We can resist the temptation to find our identity in the wrong things. We have better direction and purpose to our life when we remember who we are in Christ. And in Christ, we have no condemnation, none, because he paid for us and he took our place. He sees us as righteous and he loves us and we are his dear children. And I pray that today, if you don't know Jesus Christ and you struggle with your identity and who you are and you're trying to find that, come to Jesus. He can give you a totally new identity that is secure and lasts not only for this life but the next. But for those of you who know Jesus, remember who you are. And keep coming back to that core identity that will give you a strength to really pursue who God wants you to be. Let's close in prayer. God, we're just so amazed to think that you would do this for us. We need to remember who we are. We get pulled and tugged in so many different directions, thinking that we need to do something more, that we need to have something more, that we need other people's approval. And we just feel it in our heart that we want our lives to matter. We want to have a core identity. And so I think even in this area of sexual gender identity, I know those struggles for people are real. But God, help all of us to see that you've already given us an identity. You've created us in your image, first of all. And secondly, we can be in Christ. So would you penetrate our hearts with those truths? Give us a comprehension of how much you love us and who you've made us to be. Help us to live that out with confidence so that we can live a life that's pleasing to you and that truly does make a difference in this world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.